You're listening to Grace Seal Beach Sermons. If you'd like to know more about our church, go to gracesealbeach.org. Well, we are continuing our series in the book of Acts, looking at where unity comes from in our Christian faith. Acts is a history of the early Christian movement. It starts with Jesus' ascension to heaven after his resurrection, and it goes for the next 30 years or so, and talks about what it, how one small group of disciples of Jesus became a worldwide uh, Christian movement, uh, and in the uh, religion that we're part of now 2,000 years later. And how did they stay connected? How did they stay unified when they didn't have uh, Jesus there in person to hold them together? And the, the answer is the work of the Holy Spirit and his, his work throughout people like us throughout history. And so we've been looking at that theme of unity that shows up again and again in Acts. What does it mean for us to be uh, held together? Because we know that unity is not always the story of people, of Anyone, it's not the story of each of our lives individually. It's not the story of the Christian uh, tradition. There's a lot of times where we've chosen paths of division, of rivalry, of uh, animus towards one another. What would it mean for us to live in unity together? And how can you and I as individuals help foster that? So last week we talked about one of those times where unity kind of failed. Well, where Paul and Barnabas, in spite of being normally good and godly leaders and Christians, uh, couldn't stay together. They couldn't stay connected because of their failures to sort of see things through each other's eyes. Today we're going to look at uh, a scene of rivalry between Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. And it's uh, more of a happy ending, where rather than giving in to the temptations of rivalry, they choose a path of unity. And so uh, I want to sort of sit with this passage with you guys for the next 20, 25 minutes or so and think about how you and I are tempted towards rivalry ourselves rather than unity. Now, when I think about the word rivalry, I tend to think of sports. Um, and I, I'm kind of a sports guy. I like sports. I try not to use too many sports metaphors and sermons because I know not everyone likes sports. And um, the people who do sometimes get distracted by the metaphors and start thinking about their fantasy football teams or whatever. Um, but uh, yesterday was a big sports day for, for my family. My two favorite teams played, uh, the Titanium Cobras boys soccer team and the Blue Gummy Bears boys soccer team. Those are my two, my two sons' teams. And uh, it's amazing how much rivalry can develop with other boys just like them from their neighborhood who could have easily been on their team if the, the allocation of players had just gone a little differently. But over those 50 minutes or so, all of a sudden, rivalry comes out. And it's not just little kids, right? We turn on college football and uh, Tennessee and Alabama were playing against each other and these 19-year-olds from very similar backgrounds, very similar places. I mean, what's the difference between Tennessee and Alabama? It's basically the same. And... uh, uh, And yet there's rivalry. (laughs) Didn't expect you guys to laugh at that. and, and then last night, I've, I'm sitting like with a pit in my stomach watching the Dodgers blow a lead in the seventh inning. I know, I know. Now I've really lost you for the rest of this sermon. Um, and I'm, I'm anticipating in a few weeks UCLA and USC are going to play, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sick to my stomach all week. And I'm like, why does this matter? Like, wh- wh- why do I care? Why does it impact me so much? The, the, we are so similar, right? Like, San Diego and LA are in the same state, and yet there's such rivalry. Um, why does this matter? Now, if it's just about sports, if it's just a peculiar uh, distraction that I have and our culture has in this generation, well, well, that's fine. 
whatever, it's, it's a fun diversion. It, it beats going to war. Um, but I think, at least for me, I'll speak for myself, I think that rivalry starts to live in my bones, right? And it starts to show up in more important and more sacred areas. I, I wish I could say I've never seen rivalry in churches. I wish I could say I've never seen rivalry between Christians. I wish I could say I've never seen churches and Christians become judgmental of others because they're jealous of them. But of course I have, right? Because I've lived with myself and I've, I've seen those things in my own heart and in my own soul. Uh, we're going to look at a passage today where Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos would have been so tempted, if I was in their shoes, to be tempted towards rivalry, towards judgmentalism, towards division, based on the threat they perceived one another to be. But there's a reason why they move towards one another in unity. And, and I want to learn from that for myself. I want you to learn from that as well. So let's, let's jump into it together in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Um, last week at the end of our... Last week at the end... Let me try that again. Last week, we were at the end of chapter 15, where Paul launches off on a second great missionary journey. And in chapter 16, he goes to Philippi. In chapter 17, he goes to Berea and Athens. And now we're in chapter 18, and we meet him here in Corinth. And if you don't believe me, look at verse 1. It says, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. See, I told you so. He uh, didn't laugh at that. All right. <laughs> verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was, not of, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So Priscilla and Aquila are really important figures in the era of the New Testament church, but we don't see them a lot in the New Testament. We kind of just see them referenced and mentioned a couple times. This is kind of the biggest biography we find out about Priscilla and Aquila. And so I want to just help you notice what's in your Bible, what's there in chapter 18. It says Priscilla and Aquila came from Pontus, or more specifically, Aquila came from Pontus. Maybe Priscilla did as well. We don't know. And had moved to Rome at some point. Now that sounds romantic and exciting, and oh, I'd want to go move to Rome. That was not the first century context. In this context, if you were immigrating from Pontus to Rome, it's probably because you had no other economic option. Because new immigrants into Rome would have been at the low end of the economic food chain, and would have only kind of thrown themselves into Rome, hoping to get the scraps that were left over from the wealth of the, uh, the empire. So, I just frame it that way to help you understand who Aquila was. He is not a cosmopolitan, jet-setting sort of millionaire. He is a day laborer, a, a, a worker of a trade who has uh, had to immigrate to Rome, probably for economic reasons, started a life there, only to be evicted and become a refugee a second time. Once, it's a, as it says in the passage, when Claudius expelled all the Jews out of Rome, he immigrates to Corinth. Now, just a quick historical background, because I think it'll help you understand this passage a little bit better. Um, twice Claudius in, in the 40s, not the 1940s, but the, the 40s, uh, twice Claudius had tried to put down the Christian movement within Rome, because it was causing a lot of disturbance among the Jewish population in that city. The Jews were a minority group within Rome, but they were a prominent one. There was probably 40 to 50,000 Jewish people in Rome at this time, and there was a big debate over who Jesus was as early as 41 AD. And so Claudius makes this decree in 41 AD, according to Roman historians, that all, all minority ethnic groups must practice their religion in accordance with their ancestors. This was his attempt to say, no new friends, no new gods, no new messiahs, right? You can't talk about this anymore. But if you know the early Christians, 
They couldn't stop talking about Jesus. And so eight years later, as they continue to try to evangelize and they continue to get blowback from uh, some parts of the Jewish community there in Rome, uh, Claudius says, enough, we don't need this hassle. And he kicks out all the Jewish population, all 40 to 50,000, including uh, Priscilla and Aquila. So they end up as refugees a second time, now in Corinth. So I remember, uh, didn't have a lot of options, go to Rome, now have even less options, come to Corinth and start a life there. This is probably only about a year before Paul shows up. And let's be honest, some of us, if we had had that much suffering for our faith that we'd been expelled and had to move into a whole different city because of our faith in Jesus, would have kept a little bit of a low profile. But that's not what Priscilla and Aquila do. They take Paul in and they begin the, what we know of as the Corinthian church in their home. Priscilla and Aquila have a pattern of hospitality and of hospitality as an expression of mission throughout their life. Pretty much every time we see them listed in scripture, it's because there's a church meeting wherever they're living, in Rome, in Corinth, uh, in Ephesus, or later on in their life when they're back in Rome, again, towards the end, um, towards the end of their life. They're uh, generous with their resources, and they're hospitable for the sake of the mission of Jesus. Um, well, why do you care about that? I think it's worth thinking about hospitality as an expression of unity in your life and in my life today. Hospitality is a way that, as Henry Nouwen said, we make space for another person. Sometimes we do that literally with our homes. We make space for someone else to live there or to stay with us who needs somewhere to be. Sometimes we are hospitable in the way that we're generous and that we provide for others and the needs of others. Sometimes, as Henry Nouwen said, we make space... I think I just said that. Uh, we make space for other people. We make space for them to, to talk. We make space uh, for them to have opinions that are different than ours. We make space uh, for them to, uh, to have prominence or importance in a community or leadership in an organization. In our decision to uh, be hospitable to others for the sake of Christ, we make space for us to be connected and unity together. Sometimes, unfortunately, we don't want to be hospitable. We don't want to give over space that we want to take up, either uh, literal space in the sake of our homes or our resources, or metaphoric space in the, sake of, in the sense of prominence or leadership. And we don't stay unified with other people because we don't want them to come up to the same prominence or importance that we hold in our home or in our families. For Priscilla and Aquila, they model hospitality, and as a result, there's unity between them and Paul. Now the question is, will they make space for Apollos as well? That's where we pick up in verse 24. In the intervening 20 verses that we're skipping between verse uh, 4 and verse 24, uh, Priscilla and Aquila have now moved with Paul to help him start the church in Ephesus. So they've moved not very far geographically, but to a new city, a new community, and they're helping start over again as Paul uh, starts a new church in Ephesus. And uh, Paul, at that point, has now moved on. Paul's helped start the church, and he's moving on to a new community as a missionary. And Priscilla and Aquila have sort of stayed behind as the leaders of this church in their home in Ephesus. In verse 24, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So how's Apollos described in this passage? On a superficial level, almost the exact opposite of Priscilla and Aquila. He's described as being an eloquent man from Alexandria. So Alexandria in the ancient world was in Egypt, and it was a place of great learning. It was a place 
that was so synonymous with li- the great libraries of Alexandria and the great philosophers of Alexandria, we might think of it similar to the city of Oxford in the United Kingdom today. If you told someone you came from Oxford, they'd make certain assumptions about your education, certain assumptions about your background, certain assumptions about your book learning. Now, you might say, no, 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 uh, just because he's from Alexandria doesn't mean he was smart. And Luke wants to point out, no, no, he was, he was eloquent, which doesn't just mean he, he taught good, but it meant that he was uh, someone who was a trained rhetorician, who was, uh, had a, a classical education from there in Alexandria. So on one hand, we've got Priscilla and Aquila, who are at least twice, maybe three times, refugees. And on the other hand, we have Apollos, who went to Oxford. Right? We have very different cultural backgrounds, life experience backgrounds. And I just point that out because it's going to come up in how they relate to one another in a few minutes. Uh, and I don't mean, when I say that Apollos came from Oxford, I'm, this is not some sort of slight on him or anything like that. It's, it's a good thing that he's well-educated. And it's specifically a, a good thing that he's, as the passage says, um, that he's competent in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, and fervent in spirit. He's someone who doesn't just have sort of secular education or just head knowledge, but he knows the things of Scripture and he cares deeply about them. He's passionate in his heart about helping people know Jesus. And so he's left behind this, uh, this background in Alexandria to be a missionary just like Paul and go to different cities and apparently try to help people understand who Jesus was. There's only one problem. He's accurate in what he knows, but he doesn't know what he doesn't know. Luke says he uh, knew only the baptism of John. Now, a lot of commentators spend a lot of time trying to figure out what the heck that means. What does it mean that he knew only the baptism of John? Like, does he only have the Gospels until chapter one, and then he just doesn't know anything else afterwards? That seems unlikely. Um, How could he teach accurately the things of Jesus if all he knows is that Jesus was John's cousin and that's it? It seems more likely that uh, he knows some things about Jesus' message of the kingdom of God. Maybe he even knows about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, uh, what we'd consider the gospel today. But he doesn't understand the full implications of those and what that has to do with our life in God now. Whatever, whatever his gaps are, it's not really important. What's more important, at least more interesting to me, is what's this dynamic going to happen between Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos? How are they going to relate to one another? Because on the one hand, you have Apollos who's having a lot of ministry success, who's very important in the world's eyes, but he's wrong about some stuff. And then you have Priscilla and Aquila who are very unimportant in the world's eyes, um, who are faithful there in Ephesus, but, but not having the same sort of public recognition that Apollos is. And they know something that Apollos doesn't know about God. What will the dynamic yield between them? The reason I find this interesting, at least to me, is I know my heart, and I, I, I've observed this in other people, that sometimes rivalry will come in here. Sometimes rivalry will come up and uh, people will become jealous of the ministry success of others or the human success of others, and they'll hold someone's shortcomings over their head. And they'll say, yeah, you might have all that book learning, but you don't know about this. Right? Yeah, you, you know about this part of life, but you're pretty foolish over here. And we'll hold people's shortcomings against them. And because of this, there might have been uh, a tension and a temptation between them. Um, For Apollos, he would have been intimidating, right? Zealous, fervent, well-learned. And maybe there would have been a temptation for Priscilla and Aquila to just say, 
well, maybe when Paul gets back, he can straighten them out. But that's kind of not, that's kind of above our pay grade. We're not, we're not going to deal with that. But rather than doing that, they choose to engage with Apollos, to talk to him, to help him learn some of the gaps that he has. That's what's described in verse 26. He begins to, this is verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. They, I, what I really admire about Priscilla and Aquila here is that they care enough about Apollos just as a person to listen to him, to recognize where the gaps are, and to believe that he would care enough to be willing to listen to what they have to say. Now, I know that sounds super obvious, but think about how rarely we really listen to people in our life and believe that they'd be willing to change their opinion if they were presented with good evidence to the contrary. Too often, we just assume the worst about people. We say things like, you always do this, or you never do that. We assume they would never change their view, or we assume they're incapable of that. For Priscilla and Aquila, there's a hopefulness behind their willingness to pull Apollos aside and explain the way of God more accurately to him. There's also something really important here that they they don't shame him. They don't rebuke him in public. They don't throw him under the bus. They don't gossip about him. Instead, they make it possible for him to be successful by making this a private confrontation. Um, A lot of people have pointed out here the irony that it's Priscilla whose name is listed first often in scripture, that it's Priscilla and Aquila who take Apollos aside. In fact, in four of the five times in the New Testament where this couple is mentioned by name, it's Priscilla whose name is listed first. Now, we often refer to couples by their names together. That's kind of a normal way we talk about people in in our culture. But it wasn't necessarily normal in in the Bible. I'll, I'll prove it. What was Peter's wife's name? First Corinthians says Peter had a wife. What was his wife's name? Peter's in the Bible all over the place. What was his wife's name? <laughs> Peter had a mother-in-law. We meet her. She gets healed by Jesus. What was his wife's name? Right? Like, I, I'm just saying this not to quiz you. The Bible doesn't say. Um, just to point out that it's, when you see a couple listed together, it's significant. And when you see the wife's name listed first in the couple, it's really significant. So one commentator said, the reason we see Priscilla's name first seems to suggest that she was held in greater eminence within the Christian community. Um, She seemed to be the more popular one or the more liked one, uh, or at least the more significant leader among the couple. I think that's probably true. Um, I certainly can resonate with that, having a wife who's more well-liked than I am. Um, uh, And I think that it's significant that you see them as a couple, with Priscilla's name listed first, uh, hearing him and then going and correcting him and helping him learn a different uh, way of understanding the gospel. Now, I imagine, as tempting as it might have been for Priscilla and Aquila to sort of down-talk themselves and say, well, what do we have to teach Apollos? I mean, gosh, he, he's from Alexandria. Listen to how he speaks. He has formal rabbinical training, probably, formal rhetorical training. He probably knows a lot of stuff that we don't know. There's a theory today that maybe Apollos is the guy who wrote Hebrews. If I met the guy who wrote the book of Hebrews in our New Testament, I wouldn't pull him aside and say... I think you've got some gaps. Like, I'd be like, I've got a lot to learn from you. Right? So there's something really important about uh, learning from this passage that Priscilla and Aquila had something good and meaningful to teach even someone as prominent and important as Apollos. Conversely, I think there's something really admirable in Apollos' response, that he learns from them, that he's willing to be corrected by them. 
Gosh, I mean, how many people that are a lot less smart than Apollos do you know that would have responded to someone like Priscilla and Aquila and said, uh, I think I got this figured out, right? Uh, you know, have you seen all the people that are coming to Christ through me? I don't think I need lessons from you, small church pastors. I'm fine, right? But Apollos models Christian humility and Christian virtue, right? Because we should be, as Christians, quick to learn, quick to listen, quick to be edified, as long as it points us accurately to God uh, from any number of sources of knowledge and information. For Apollos, there's humility in his listening to Priscilla and Aquila, maybe especially from Priscilla. How many men do you know that wouldn't have listened to her? Well, this tension doesn't resolve after one conversation, though, because it's sort of uh, brought to the surface when Apollos decides that he wants to continue his ministry in a place where Priscilla and Aquila had some history. Um, I'm going to read verses 27 and 28, and it's going to say Achaia in here, but Achaia refers to a region of which Corinth is the main city. So just as I say Achaia, just think about them going to Corinth. Verse 27, when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The result of Priscilla and Aquila's investment in Apollos is that he decides that, that God's calling him to go lead the Corinthians to a greater understanding of God. Now, again, maybe this is too autobiographical, but I can imagine my sinful nature flaring up at this point if I'm Priscilla and Aquila and saying, they're fine. We taught that church. They know all this stuff. Uh, you don't need to go correct their gaps. We didn't leave, leave any gaps, right? This, if you can imagine in the, in the sake of a craftsman, someone saying, hey, I'm going to go back to that house that's over there because I think there's a lot of cracks in the foundation. And the original builder saying, I didn't leave any cracks in the foundation. You don't need to go there of all places. But Priscilla and Aquila, again, to their credit and their humility and their celebrating wins together, uh, not only encourage him, but they advocate for him. They write letters on his behalf. They probably financially fund his trip, at least at first. And as a result, the church at Corinth thrives under Apollos' ministry. Paul talks about this himself in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, when he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. What do we learn from that, it's that unity is possible when we all celebrate the same wins and the same goals. For Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, they were not two football teams pitted against one another, each trying to go to a different end zone, but they were working together towards the same wins and the same success and the same markers of, uh, of kingdom advancement. This is really important for us because too often in churches, we see other churches as threats or we see other ministries even within our own church as a threat. We watched that video of Justin and Heidi earlier, and we're celebrating the fact that they're starting Branches Church, and it's such a win for the kingdom that they're continuing to, to reach people for the gospel. But let's just be honest, it's a little easier because it's 12 hours away in basically Southern Oregon, right? Churches have a really bad history, at least American churches, I can't speak for the rest of the world. Uh, American churches have a really bad history of when new churches come to town, finding flaws rather than uh, markers of success in what's there. Because we get threatened, we get afraid that the people are going to impinge on our turf. And 
not just churches, but even departments within churches. I've been on staff at places where there's a, a sense of rivalry between the missions department and the groups department and the worship department because they all feel like they're fighting for the same volunteers or the same resources or the same giving. That's never what it should mean to be in the kingdom of God. Right? When we win, we win together and we celebrate those wins for eternity together. For Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, they model that for us. Now, I know that's, that part of the sermon is like very pastor-centric. And so I've been thinking like, what would like normal people how would they apply that to their life if they weren't a pastor? They were just like, like normal human beings who did normal things. Um, and I was thinking, well, rivalry doesn't end just with pastoral life, right? Rivalry is a problem for all of us. Rivalry for credit with our spouse, rivalry uh, with our neighbors, rivalry with people at work. The question of what do we do when we don't get the credit or when people don't speak well of us or when people don't notice our contribution is a question that we all have to wrestle with as Christians. The irony, of course, is that you have a secret power in this as a Christian that the world doesn't have, in that you don't need to get the credit, right? You don't need people to remember you. You don't need to have a legacy because you have all those things held in Christ. If you're a Christian, if you've accepted Christ in your life, the God of the universe sees you. He cares about you. He's holding you in his hand now and forever. Who cares if people don't notice that you gave up your parking spot? <laughs> like, who, who cares if people forget your name in a hundred years or a thousand years? Who cares if there's not a monument to you after you're gone? Because you're living forever with God. Right? Uh, in the 17th century, there was a, a German count, um, which I know sounds like the beginning of like a, a cartoon, but this is a real guy. Um, uh, named, uh, I forget his name. Um, and he said, preach the gospel die and be forgotten, right? That was his approach to life. Preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. When all his peers, the other sort of German princes were, were angling for how they would use religion as a tool to build a legacy, to build a reputation, to be important in their lineage, uh, Zizendorf's goal was to be faithful to the gospel in his generation. The irony, of course, is now I know Zizendorf's name 300 years ago and all those other German princes, I have no idea who they are. The gospel gives us a capacity to be able to withstand and be able to hold the idea that we're not important in the world's eyes because we're important in God's eyes. And because of that, it gives us a freedom not to need to win now, but to delight in God's wins forever. All right, a couple questions as we close here. Um, Think about Priscilla and Aquila. Would you be willing to have done what they did, to invest in someone else, who seemed more important than you already in the world's eyes and was just going to surpass you if you invested in them? Would you be willing to to help them win even if it didn't help you become more important? Would you have done that if you were in their shoes? And before you give yourself too much credit, because I'm quick to, you know, we're quick to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Have you done that? Like, have you been investing in other people that are going to surpass you? Your kids are an obvious example of that if you have kids or grandkids, but, but maybe other people who, who aren't of your biological family, are you investing in others uh, simply for the sake of the kingdom of God's advancement? And then look at this passage from Paulus' standpoint in the second question. Would you have been willing to listen to Priscilla and Aquila if you were in Apollos' shoes? Would, would you have been quick to be edified? Or would you have seen sort of the, the socioeconomic markers and, and the, the disparity in power, maybe the disparity in ministry success, and said, I don't have much to learn from them. And again, before we give ourselves too much credit, 
Think about your life these days. Are you someone who's quick to learn from people who are different than you? People who seem less important in the world's eyes than you are? Or do you only look up, you know, in your eyes? Do you only look up to people uh, and learn from them? Or, or are you willing to look across uh, barriers and, and, and boundaries in our cultures, uh, in, in our culture, to find places to learn about Christ from? Well, I hope the story of Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos is an encouragement to us uh, to be unified, not, not to engage in rivalry or, or conceitedness, but, but to choose a path of winning together because Christ is worth it. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful for Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. Um, as Romans 16 says, you know, all the Gentile churches, thank, thank you for Priscilla and Aquila, and we, we do today as well. Um, we're grateful for their example of humility and leadership and courage. Uh, we're grateful for Apollos as well. Whether he wrote Hebrews or not, we're grateful for him. We're grateful for the, the risks he took to share the gospel with people. And mostly today, we're grateful for his humility and being willing to learn uh, when, when some of the social markers said that he was the more important one. God, I pray that um, even more than Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, that, that we would see these virtues in Christ and we would become more like him uh, this week. It's in his name we pray. Amen.